welcome to Red, White, and Vroom Podcasting, Formula One, IndyCar, and Zeppelin Rallycross, a production of Consolidated Sleutheria Media. Official disclaimer, for the purposes of this podcast, I know nothing about anything. Well, Elena knows something about several things, none of them officially. I am your host, John, and joining me on the other line... She has turned a noted Florida man, Kyle M. Kirkwood. It is Elena. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Welcome back to the pod. Gosh, there was some motorsport today. There was a lot of motorsport today. Holy heck. Okay, so given that we were on racing on all sorts of different continents with all sorts of life plans and schedules... I, I am. It, it may be helpful to set the context of how we took in each race. Uh, I, for instance, um, had intentions of watching the Formula One race live and um, had a very good night's sleep. Yeah. <laughs> However, when I woke up, I grabbed my tablet and I casted F1 TV's Race in 30 to my TV. And took it in that way. And then uh, ended up watching the IndyCar race live. How about you, Elena? Well, so I had no intention of watching the F1 race live. (laughs) Uh, That was never going to happen. But I had talked to several people and said, hey, if it's worth watching the whole race instead of the race in 30, text me. So when I got up in the morning, I looked at my phone and I did not open anything except my text messages. And I had several saying, you should watch the race. So it's like, okay. So after a little bit of that, I went downstairs and turned on the race about five laps in, my husband wakes up and I tried to rewind and we started over, but we watched the whole thing. Uh, not live, but sort of like it was live, but skipping red flags. And then I watched the IndyCar race live. Yes. So I, I think you will have maybe a more fulsome perspective on the F1 race as I gather its last red flag was something like half an hour or something like that. <laughs> I am so glad I didn't stay up for that. Can you imagine right? how annoyed I would have been? Oh, it wouldn't have been good. Particularly as it did exactly zero content, as it took them half an hour to finish in the order that they had been before. I I laughed. Yes. I laughed. So, where should we start this race? As we have two um, very dramatic races. There is a great deal of drama in motorsport today. We have the IndyCar race in Texas, and we have Formula One in Australia. So, I I will turn it up to Elena. Where should we start? I think we should do F1 first, because I think IndyCar is going to take longer. All right. So, moving that up. Let's go to Formula One in Australia. What in the NASCAR was that? I don't know. Oh, my gosh. So for those who didn't watch NASCAR last week, uh, I had never seen most of a NASCAR race before. I still didn't quite watch all of it. And John, I I think you hadn't. Yes, I've rarely, well, I basically only watched NASCAR for Kimi Raikkonen or Connor Daly. And both of them were here. And so it was maybe my second and a half NASCAR race. 
but definitely the only one I watched all the way through. So what we learned is that in NASCAR, you get a lot more red flags, especially at the end of the race. There's like a, they go, they went to triple overtime. And Infinite red flags is written into their rules. So that's what F1 felt like this week. It, and like, I get why they did it because, you know, after Abu Dhabi, we were all saying, well, if they really wanted to end on under green, what they needed to do was red flag the race and restart instead of having a safety car. And so what did they do in this situation? They really want to end under green. So they red flagged the race, but it didn't quite work out for them. Cautions breed cautions, apparently. And so, you know, we just saw this NASCAR race where NASCAR has very low driving standards. You know, they have, <laughs> you can say that they have bumpers, they have doors, they routinely run into each other. That's part of it. Rubbin is racing. Exactly. Rubbin is racing. And even they were saying after Austin that they were embarrassed to be NASCAR drivers after that. That it needed to be cleaned up. Some of them celebrated the show, just sort of went full, you know, nihilism. But most of them were just like, this was ridiculous. Because at the end, every single restart, people would just crash each other out. And so you couldn't end if you had a rule that said, we have to restart if there's a crash. I... I, I don't even know what to say. Like, <laughs> NASCAR, and, and, NASCAR is and, something. Right. And, and so we watched that and we were like, okay, don't need to watch NASCAR again. And yep. then we watched this Formula One race, the pinnacle of motorsport, where at the end of the race, I was just re-watching the race in 30 and at lap 54 where Kevin Magnuson's tire blows wondering how I had nine minutes left in my half hour of <laughs> Formula One if there were only five laps left I had a very similar experience where I, I was watching the recording uh on my DVR and I was like you know why is there so much time left I didn't think ESPN usually showed that much of the post show and there were like three red flags in a row and on the on one of them, the, it looked like they had all been watching Jensen and Kimmy at NASCAR. And we're like, oh, that's what you're supposed to do on a restart. You're supposed to hit go, and then as you approach turn one, turn wildly <laughs> into a car near you. What? So I didn't really get what was going on because I fast forwarded the red flags. So, so I'm sure they discussed this, but after that last red flag, when they were restarting, I was like, okay, so now they're doing the formation lap, right? And I was like waiting for the next restart. And then it was like, and the race is over. And I was like, oh, that sucks. And then I realized what happened. It's because the lap of the crash and they finished it. So that counts as a lap as they go into the pits. And then, you know, they have to do a formation lap. And that was the last lap of the race. And I just, I have to say it would have been, Maybe better to just end under yellow? Yeah, yeah. Oh, or apparently not make the world wait for half an hour while your uh, stewards wake up and are handed a copy of the Formula One and FIA rulebook for the first time. 
and they have to <laughs> pursue an answer of how they're supposed to handle this situation. But, and so, you know, it was just carnage. And so I was pulling up the, uh, you know, classifications, race results for each. And in the end, um, classifications in the Formula One race went down to 12 and then starts the DNFs, including the entire nation of France. (laughs) Uh, Nick DeVries, Logan Sargent, Kevin Magnuson, George Russell, Alexander Albon, and Charles Leclerc. So before the start of the season, this is the the entire nation of France. This is a front (laughs) to that. Uh, I was trying to set the over-under on number of times the Alpine teammates crash each other out. And my husband and I were sort of arguing over this. And I think where we landed on what the over-under should be was uh, three and a half. So if the, if it's the line is set at three and a half, are you taking the over or are you taking the under? Let's see. This is our third race um, out of 23, something like that. But do you think once it happens, once it escalates, is it more likely to happen in the future because it has now happened? I am going with the under because I think that Pierre Gasly has been so traumatized by the Red Bull racing experience. Uh, Apparently this week he was giving quotes to the media after two races with Alpine in which he was pretty much on par with his teammate, telling them, just give me time. Just give me time. I have a few more tents in me. Okay. While he's on a long-term deal, and so I think he is going to shrink within himself and just go, oh no, oh no. If I crash out, they'll bend me. I need to just back off any time I'm near SD Bestie. Okay, so you're taking the under? I'm taking the under. Okay. I have two. If it had been, so if the line at three and a half, I'm taking the under. If the line were at two and a half, I would take the over because I think it's three. I think we're going to get three mm-hmm. this season. Yeah. So. That, that seems reasonable, especially given how much Alpine crashed uh, their own cars out last season when they didn't have a decades old blood feud between families. Yes. All right. So the Formula One race was nonsense and so we we have given it probably already for what seemed like it was going to be exciting it just got to be stupid um oh i do want to i do want to shout out to oscar's grandma for making cookies for the mclaren garage that's adorable as a kind of wholesome content that keeps me invested in this team so yeah good for you grandma piastri you're you're doing your part and it brought Oscar into the points for his first Formula One points at home in the city he grew up in. I'm so pleased for him. And mostly this for pod- his grandma. This podcast is in favor of cookies, grandmas, and grandma's cookies. Uh, before we leave Formula One in our dust, I, I do want to uh, take a minute and just sort of tip my... Uh, patriotic Andretti hat to George Russell as he had an unfortunate day having the first random red flag completely ruin his race. Um, But he beat Max. He beat the pants off Max at the race start. Uh, As a respect to that. And then 
when his car full on like was billowing fire out the back as if he had brought back V10s. <laughs> he waited and didn't just pull over. He called out failure and then went down the entire pit straight as the flames were growing and mushrooming out so that he could pull into the pit exit and be easily retrievable and not interfere with the race too much. Respect to our man, George Russell. Tip of the hat. Indeed. And so with that, let's make a change. Uh, But before we do that, we have a sponsor ad read that we need to get to. So insert your appropriate uh, music here. For Sweepy's Racetrack Brooms, whether you're bringing it to bear on marbles, gravel, or pieces and parts of former race cars, Sweepy's Brooms will restore your racing to the quality and standards your sport deserves. Hand it out to your brigade of marshals or stick it on the front of municipal truck fleets. Sweepy's has you covered. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you, Sweepy's. Let us now get to uh, IndyCar, where they did not throw red flags in order to brush off some gravel. They did not throw red flags in order to retrieve one uh, errant and uh, high-flying former uh, race wheel and tire. Uh, they, they they just used it to brush up some marbles while they were peaked you know, picking up uh, former husks of racing cars that had smashed walls at 200 miles an hour, as as brooms should be used on a racetrack. Okay, so um, that Texas race, I think I saw several of our friends say that they, like, were not breathing for 60% of that race, <laughs> which, given that it was a 90-minute race, um, I urge you to seek medical care. Uh, but I believe permanent brain damage has likely been done. Uh, it is what it is. But I can't blame them because that was an intense race. And so my question to you, um, and answer this honestly and however you like, I think that was a brilliant race. Was that good for an oval or was that just good? So I am not a fan of oval racing. I, I have been mm-hmm. very clear about this. Um, and, you know, large parts of that race, I was kind of like, eh, okay, okay. But it was a good race. Yeah. Oval's pretty good, it turns out. Oh, you hate to see it. You hate to, you know, welcome. Welcome into the full fold of IndyCar racing, Elena. You're going to love it every time you go left. <laughs> Okay, so yes, um, just sort of a global point. Want to give respect to Will Power for suggesting the idea of having the high line running, where they laid down the rubber and made it possible to use multiple lanes because cars were just going two to four wide all race. It was crazy. I mean, I so. I've watched. I watched a bunch of Iowa last year. I don't remember which one. I watched some of it, and like was not really blown away. And I watched part of the five hundred. I watched the end of the five hundred last year, which was good. I mean, until the very end. 
But this was definitely the most exciting oval race I've seen. I mean, it was mm-hmm. it was very cool. And I think like part of it is like being on a short track kind of helps because there's like more changing constantly. Uh, like I think a short oval is maybe more to my taste than a standard one. But uh, it was it was a good race, and having the high line like rubbered in and for the most part clear was key to that. Yes, I, and then just as it was getting sort of marbly, and uh, cars, including Felix and uh, Stingray, were just you know running and then finding themselves playing ping pong between walls that were football fields apart. Um, they brought the brushes out, took those marbles off, and it was back to the races. So, yeah, that was good. Um, now let's get into the details. Some of the most important details being justice for Alexander Rossi. Elena, can you take us away? Okay, so this is now two years in a row where the number 27 Andretti car has ruined Alexander Rossi's race in Texas. <laughs> So, I'm not super pleased. What happened? For those of you who didn't watch. So, Rossi's in his pit box uh, during a, a caution. And Kyle Kirkwood comes down in the fast lane, the pit lane, and jumps in all of a sudden right as Rossi's been released and hits him. And, I mean, at the time, the commentator's like, what the heck? That's not, you're not allowed to do that. That, like, Kirkwood is probably going to get a penalty. And, and... Rossi has enough damage, he has to stay there, ends up, I think, six laps down, getting his suspension worked on. It completely screws his race. Like, he had no no shot after that, which really sucks as someone who was in a very good car this week. Yeah, but, and was up in, like, P4. Like, I think was he was in contention. He was definitely in it still. But, yeah. So, so in the IndyCar pit lane, there are two lanes. There's, like, the fast lane, which is typically what you use when you are leaving from your pit stop. And then there's the like slow lane, which I think it has a technical term that for it, but I don't remember what that is, uh, which is what you use for entering and leaving your pit box. And so the spotters or the people hit the pit crew for Rossi's car is watching the slow lane to decide whether it's safe to release him. And they didn't see anyone there because there wasn't anyone there. So they released him. Uh, and Kirkwood was in the fast lane and shouldn't have been. And, as it, it comes out, the race race control gives a penalty to Rossi, which, you know, insult to injury because, like, the dude's race has been completely ruined. And now they're giving him a penalty for it after the fact. So the, someone, you know, tweeted at him being like, it wasn't your fault. And he, he quote tweeted it being like, oh, yeah, I know. And then someone responded to him, screenshotting the section of the IndyCar rules where it explains what lane you're supposed to be using, clearly showing that Kirkwood was in the wrong by the letter of the law. And he he has to be so mad now. And, and Kirkwood didn't even have, you know, the good, like, manners to capitalize on this windfall and do well in the race. So he's my enemy. Yes, Kyle Kirkwood, who, you know... Had a rough rookie season last year. Uh, had been thought that he was very talented. You know, he had a good race until uh, some nonsense caught him up in St. Pete. 
But what got him last year was apparently just like needless contact. Being bad at his job. Yeah. And so that got him again here because it also damaged his race. And then he retired with a broken something as the racing god struck him down. Kyle Kirkwood is on the the bad list. Santa's not going to bring him any presents this year. You heard it here first. Um, on the other end of the spectrum of days, for the most part, Pado Award. Like, we know he's good at Oval. We know he has ninja hands. That man had a jet turbine strapped invisibly to his Indianapolis series car. It was amazing. I, how, how do you... How do you stretch your legs like Usain Bolt in a spec series and get to the point where not even halfway or barely halfway through the race, there are two cars on the lead lap? How does that happen? And he he didn't get caught up by any traffic because he was in a different sport. He would approach traffic, including cars that are championship contenders, and just turn around them and hit go. It was it was a masterclass. I mean, so there are two options here. One is that McLaren or Aero McLaren has really dialed in their setup. They've got a car that they like really know how to tune for the ovals. And this is going to be a really good oval package for them this year, which, you know, bodes well for uh, awards chances uh, you know, in May, as well as the rest of the Aero McLaren team. Or option two, they're cheating. <laughs> but because this is not F1, and also because this is not Meyer Shank racing, uh, <laughs> I'm going to go with it's probably option one. But if it turns out to be option two, you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, frankly, that sort of look like the Meyer Shank car where it was just unbelievably faster than anything else on the road. Yeah. What um I I am going to go with they have a great car and even more than that a great driver. Because yes. I mean Felix Rosenquist started from the front and just dropped back in that car. We never got to see what Rossi could do. But Pato just just went and just tore everything. What so what then I wondered was why it didn't quite work out like that in the back end of the race. I know he got caught out a little bit in strategy of being told to uh fuel save a ton when everyone else had pitted and he had not. And our boy Stingray Rob uh hit the invisible marbles which were real to be clear you just can't see them apparently and uh ping-ponged his car and brought out the caution that pato needed to get on new tires and a full tank of fuel because he was not going to nurse or fuel save his way to a 12th place he was going to run out of gas on the track that is not in pato's dna And so he came in, he got it, he was going well. But towards the end of the race, he was more in the pack. He didn't just stretch his legs. Why do you think that was? 
Well, because I'm a noted oval expert, uh, I will tell you that it's definitively because he didn't have as much of a tire advantage as he did earlier in the race. You know, I, I think there's something to be said there. But it, it's still, to me, it's it just remarkable, given how long he was able to run that insanity um, in the middle of the race, for it not to be comparable when they were all in roughly the same position. Also, though, let's step back and... Um, you know, Pato ended up not winning the race, but we avoided a perilous, threatening snake bite as Alex Pillow was in the mix for a disturbing amount of the time. And if he had won, I would have been downright unhappy. Yeah, agreed. I, I'm pleased that he did not win. Uh, I'm sad Pato didn't win, but... He is leading the championship now, which is like, you know, a consolation. Yeah, and that is really interesting. Is that he's had two second places, and he's had he's had some um, heartache, uh, if not total heartbreak, in that. But it has added up to the points where he is leading in the championship right now, and that is a better place to be than having won one and bend one. Sure and, is. And so, and Newgarden deserved, you know, he was a worthy adversary for Pato. He was literally the only guy who stayed on the lead lap when Pato entered hyperspeed. Um, I mean, Newgarden is very good at short ovals. I mean, he's very good at ovals, but he's especially very good at short ovals. Uh, and like, there's a, I, going into this weekend, was like, okay, I'm pretty sure that the race winner is going to be either uh, Pato or Joseph. So, mm-hmm. I... Noted oval expert. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I am, for this week, the number seven finisher worldwide in IndyCar fantasy. Noted oval expert, Elena! <laughs> yes. Absolutely. And so, you know, he did his job and he uh, ended up being ahead when um, Grosjean things happened. Grosjean doing Grosjean things. Yeah. So what happened there? I He hit a wall. I did not. Honestly, I did not catch it. Uh, yeah. I think that I think someone hit him. Like, I do think there was some contact. But I, when Grosjean crashes out of a race, I kind of roll my eyes. And well, move on. Yes, because Grosjean had been playing with fire that whole race. He was, you know, there was a lot of crowding. There was a lot of very close racing. It helped make this all exciting. But Grosjean, as someone who doesn't have a lifetime on ovals, was getting real close to the tires of his fellow competitors for many laps before... Um, he lost control. And so then, when he did lose control, you know, the announcers were saying, oh, how unlucky for the second race in a row. Mm-hmm. And as I believe you've discussed on this podcast, there starts to be a pattern where Romain Grosjean, for 
80 to 90% of a race can be a very fast driver. But that other 10 to 20% will bring him into contact with another object that resists him sufficiently to break things. I mean, I think I've said this before. He's very much sort of like a win it or bin it type of driver. And that works a little bit better in IndyCar than it did in F1. And, uh, and, you know, in his rookie season, he got some really impressive results, especially not being in a top team, and it got him a seat with Andretti. But, you know, I think, you know, the, if he can't finish a race or finish a race on the lead lap, his days are numbered. If you were Michael Andretti right now, and Roman Grosjean went from being slow on your team to being fast and crashy, how would you be feeling about uh, the decision you will have to make at some point as to whether to offer him another contract or send him packing? I I think that I would feel like he's making my mind up for me because you know what's worse than being slow and getting bad race results? Being expensive and getting bad race results. Ah, uh, that, that, that is very well put. And if if that is the case, he may just go to be a Lambo sports car driver, which would be a precipitous fall for the supposed number one fan favorite in IndyCar. We'll see. I shouldn't laugh at that because I definitely was one of the people who voted for him because I did not really watch IndyCar at the time. And I had a lot of good feelings about him after his crash. But, I mean, I could... I could understand how ridiculous it is that he won that given that i contributed to it yes and i still like i'm not anti-grosjean i likewise am not as you know rabidly rooting for him as immediately after he walked out of fire but i think i've pretty much regressed to how i felt about him for most of his f1 career which was if he hadn't crashed recently. Oh, I forgot about him. Uh -huh. And like I I enjoy his Instagram presence. He's like super he's a super wife guy, which I like, and his kids are cute, which I also like. But he doesn't need to be driving in IndyCar for me to like have those online interactions that make me happy. So, uh speaking of team Andretti, there was a little bit of news that came out coming into this weekend, which was that Andretti Motorsport transferred Brian Herda, Colton's father, and Colton's race strategist for his entire life and racing career to Kyle Kirkwood's car and swapped the strategist that Kirkwood had to Colton. Okay, do you want my real theory here or my conspiracy theory? Conspiracies first, always. Well, no, I'm only going to give you one. Oh, this is high stakes. I want both. Well, that's too bad. Uh, <laughs> so you're going to get the conspiracy because that's what you said. So my conspiracy theory is that this is Andretti preparing for their F1 bid because they don't think Brian Herta is the right person to be his race engineer in Formula One. So they need him to prove to them that he can do it with someone else. I want the real theory now. Nope, you got what you you got it. All right. So, when I first saw this, I think we all wondered, 
did Colton cut, you know, is Colton cutting his dad loose? Is Colton saying, I've gone as far as I can go? Um, But he made very clear when he was interviewed on NBC that it was not only not his decision, which can be a way of, you know, there are a number of ways to obfuscate around that. He said, I am an Andretti employee and I obey orders. So we'll see how it goes. It's been going real well. Yeah. So, I mean, Brian Herta is a great, uh, experienced veteran of IndyCar in particular. Okay, you want the real theory? Yes. Okay, the real theory is that they think Colton can do it with someone else, and they're worried about Kirkwood, and they think he needs Brian Herta. Exactly. That that is what I that's the real to as well. Of this was the panic alarm inside Andretti with. Kirkwood is like the up and coming prospect we have to fill Alexander Rossi's shoes. The other folks we have are Grosjean, who and child of uh, <laughs> SEC violations, <laughs> Devlin DeFrancesco, who they tried to get rid of last year until they read his contract close enough and realized they couldn't. So can they get rid of him this year? Does he have a contract I, for next year? I believe his con... I want to say his contract is up Okay, uh, at I, the end of this year. With a potential two Andretti seats coming open at the end of this year, I think it would be we should consider in the future, not now it's too early in the season, who we think is going to uh, be going there. What are our silly season predictions? Too early, maybe by one race. <laughs> so stay tuned. This recurring segment may become a main feature of this year's Red, White, and Vroom. Sorry for stealing your thunder. <laughs> no. Um, for our listeners, just so you know, John and I do not talk about the plans for these podcasts before we start recording. There are plans, but... Sometimes. Well, there seem, I, it seems to me like there are plans, but I usually figure them out. As we go. Well, John plans ahead. Right. Yes. Noted for my planning. uh, That I am. Um, And so, yes, Kirkwood did not have a good day in any way. And I I do also, I likewise think this is Andretti ringing the alarm bell of we need to bring in our, you know, almost co-owner veteran hand to settle this kid down and salvage him from being a lost project. Um, We can't, however, go through this IndyCar section and podcast without taking a little bit of time to appreciate little Davey Malukas. P4, I wish Polo had gotten past and Malukas was back on the podium but he was just delighted saying that he was looking around himself towards the end there with all the big teams you know the big guys around him and just going wow and i highly recommend anyone watch a uh pre-race maybe post-quali video he did with national treasure marshall pruitt where it was nine minutes of a two-man act 
of both of them just riffing and jokesing and David Malukas riffing on all of the nicknames that he thought he had when it turned out he had David and sometimes he had been called Davy as a child. <laughs> and so then started uh, running off his sponsors, his race number, all of his quote unquote nicknames. Um, and then Marshall, some for whatever reason, starts poking fun at him for being sexist for something uh that that was just you know manufactured and the reason it was great was that malukas's ears lit up bright red <laughs> deep red red like the wall behind you elena <laughs> for the rest of the video as grandfatherly marshall pruitt was just chuckling and twisting the knife for no especial reason other than to continue getting that reaction out. He, he is just a great entertaining presence, and he appears to be real fast as well. He has future Penske driver written all over him. Yes, yes. I mean, the, he is already a junior bus bro. So a bus we cousin, will s- I think? Bus cousin. Bus cousin. And so if... Uh, Chip Ganassi has their eyes set on Callum Eilat, uh, who is already hearing all of the uh, great things that a big team can offer from his regular podcast conversations with Marcus Armstrong. That, that by the way, is an underrated part of their podcast together, where Marcus just sort of drops a uh, Oh, you know, we were in the trailer where we have the TVs, you know, around all of the walls and we have 20 people there. And so we were breaking down this and that. And Callum's like, you guys have 20 people? And a trailer? We have a tent. (laughs) I I bring my home TV and set it up. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, all right. So this is, I could afford last year's races. So let's watch take from (laughs) last year. (laughs) This is not fair. Uh, Hookah's Holiger Racing is actually doing remarkably well and growing very fast and all of that. And actually, it is worthwhile to bring us to uh, perhaps a close with a recognition of Callum's teammate as they have doubled uh, in size this year and taken on another car. And Augustine Canapino is a mid-30s touring car driver from Argentina who was very successful there, but had not either driven an open wheel car or spoken a word of English before he was signed at the start of this year. And in three months, he is speaking basically the same English as Antonio Banderas for his entire cinematic career. (laughs) And finishing as the top rookie and placing 12th at his first ever oval at Texas. I think this guy might be smart. Well, so the other thing that I thought was really notable was from Quali. Uh, he, his laps were like bang on the exact same time. They weren't that fast, 
But the announcers were commenting on this. Like his consistency is really impressive. And that is what they say is the mark of a great racing driver is that consistency. And he was, I think you're right. He was within his um, quality times were within a thousandth of each other. Which, for those of you who don't watch uh, oval racing, the way it works for quality is that you run two laps in a row at speed. And T- tell us, nodal, noted oval expert. <laughs> you run two laps at speed, and uh, the average speed or of your lap or average time of your lap, of your two laps, is what sets your uh, spot on the grid. And, you know, there, there were many people who they're like really good drivers who would be like two miles an hour apart in their two things. And he would just be up there and do it exactly the same. Yeah. So, he's, he's impressed me a lot this season. Yes. And so for a mid thirties rookie who spent his entire year in bumpers and doors, that, that is some impressive stuff. And so Augustine Canapino going to continue to follow Likewise, the rest of motorsport, as this was a ridiculous day. And honestly, I love things that go through. Uh, So to close us out, uh, we have two uh, bits of business that we need to cover. The first is a reader response to what we requested, uh, which was people's... I think it's a listener response. I'm sorry. What did I say? Reader. Reader. Yeah. I mean, I read with my ears, so I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, to wheels on the bus, Off Track suggested push, put the drivers say push, 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 and listener Debbie submits on her own behalf that in the racing, Debbie says rage, rage, rage. So thank you. Debbie, that is appreciated. And now our outro, our hallowed, time-honored, stretching back into the beginnings of time outro, a favorite random motorsport fact or anecdote. Elena, will you kick us off? Yeah, so uh, we've talked a little bit about fuel injection on the podcast. And watching the NASCAR race, uh, last weekend, uh, I was interested to learn that until uh, 2012, NASCAR Cup cars still used carbureted engines. Uh, that's insane. IndyCar has not used a carbureted engine since 1963, but we do still retain the term in Carb Day for the Indy 500, which uh, comes from needing to have some time running on the track to tune in your carbs. Uh, and now it just refers to the day where you do some, a shakedown and you get a couple laps to sort of do a little bit of practice of your pit stop and make sure you've like dialed in your setup, make sure the cars sort of feel in right. All right. Well, you saved yourself there with the carb day bit. Because otherwise, I was going to challenge you for recycling a fact that I told you, like, a week ago. 
And so I will have my fact be added context there that the reason why NASCAR uh, used carbureted engines was apparently because in 1956, um, Chevrolet introduced a mechanically fuel-injected engine that was blowing the field away. And the other teams and manufacturers did not want to invest in developing fuel injection. And so Bill French and NASCAR banned fuel injection. And as in so many things, a situational decision became a time-honored tradition. And to this day, the Xfinity Race Series which is the junior race, but only slightly junior to NASCAR's top-level cup series, still runs on carbureted engines. Which is insane. (laughs) So, right in in, with your own defense of carbureted engines, this has been Red, White, and Vroom Podcasting. Thank you very much, and good night.